The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Carol Height is a native plant and wildflower advocate. She is a prolific writer for local publications and is a very high-in-demand speaker for wildflowers and native plants. Her blog is bloomingbeautiful.com. After 30 years, she is a retired fifth-grade science teacher. Carol is currently active with the West Georgia chapter of the Georgia Native Plant Society, where she has served as chairman of the Buffalo Creek Trail Restoration Committee and as an active native plant facilitator our interview with carol height episode 10 of the garden question podcast right after this you're invited to ask your garden design build or grow question at thegardenquestion.com not only do you get a chance to ask your own question but you might inspire the next episode of the garden question podcast so go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question Carol, what is a native plant? A native plant is considered to be any plant that was here before any Europeans came over. So they've been here since the the continent formed, but nothing was brought from other continents. Why do you treasure native plants? I didn't know how important they were when I first joined the Native Plant Society, but I did notice that I was not having as many pollinators and I didn't seem to have as many birds in my yard. Started doing some research and found out it was the insecticides and the pesticides that were being used in a lot of areas. But I also found that it requires native plants to feed the native insects and birds because they cannot eat non-native plants for the most part. What type of native wildlife are you seeing in your garden? I have, I think, about 25 or 30 different species of birds. And last year I had um, maybe 15 or 20 species of butterflies and moths that I saw. There may have been some that I didn't see. And I have chipmunks and squirrels and I've had possums and deer. And I've had some armadillo, but luckily I've gotten rid of those because they're not (laughs) So I've seen a tremendous increase of pollinators in my garden since I put my native flower bed next to my garden bed. I have people who ask me, well, why do you want to plant natives? Why are natives important? And my question to them is always, you like to eat, don't you? Because uh, insect pollinators produce about 75% of the food that we eat. Most all of your fruits and vegetables in the grocery store would be gone if we didn't have pollinators. Can you expand on that a little bit? For example, I have, I used to have a honeybee hive. I was not a good honeybee keeper and I finally just gave my hive away. But then I got interested in native bees. We have a native, two native bees in particular, one called the leaf cutter bee, lay eggs in hollow tubes. An article I read said that two of the female, not the leaf cutter, the other one, I'll think of it in a minute. The other bee, two of those could do as much pollinating in one day as an entire hive of honeybees. I have little hollow tubes hanging from tree limbs in my yard. I have little houses with hollow tubes in them to encourage those bees. And when I get my, I think they're called minor bees. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up and see. When I have those, they come out 
in the spring and they pollinate my spring garden and then they lay their eggs and they die off. And then when it's time for my summer garden to come around, the leaf cutter bees come out of their tubes and they pollinate my summer vegetable garden and then they lay eggs and they die until the next season. I'll take two bees pollinating all of my garden over a whole hive of honeybees that I have to tend their their hive and I don't have to do anything for these bees except provide the hollow tubes. Without pollination, there's no vegetables, right? Right, because the the insect goes into the flower of any plant seeking either nectar or pollen. When they go in there, nature has divided and has just devised many of our insects in incredible ways. Many of them have fuzzy bodies. And when they go in, they're not intending to get that pollen all over them, but they do quite by accident. So they fly from one flower to the next flower. And while they're in there getting nectar from that flower, that pollen uh, goes down the, the stigma of the uh, second flower and pollinates and, and fertilizes the eggs down in the ovary. And that ovary is what produces the fruit. When you eat an apple off of an apple tree, you're eating the ovary of the flower and the seeds inside are going to make then the next plant. But if you don't have that pollen going down the stigma, you don't get any uh, fruit because it cannot set because you have to unite the male pollen with the female part of the of the pl- a plant to, to pollinate it, to fertilize it. It's just incredible the way it works. <laughs> yeah, you're making me hungry talking about this. <laughs> well, I, I had a lot of trouble with my squash not producing vegetables because they weren't getting pollinated. But I've discovered that bumblebees are the best pollinators of my squash garden. I have learned that bumblebees nest in the ground. So I leave some areas all over my yard where I don't have any plant growing there and I don't disturb that soil and they will just burrow down in the ground. The female bumblebee is the only bee that survives the winter. She lives lives in the ground, all the other bumblebees die off. And then when she emerges from the ground, she lays her eggs and those insects hatch out and it's your whole new crop of bumblebees. They're the bullies in the garden. They can get inside those plants that other insects aren't strong enough to get inside. We have some native flowers that no insect except bumblebees can actually pollinate them. So you saw an increase in, in production in your garden after you started focusing more on native plants. Yes. And another reason that happened is I started providing what the butterflies need. Now, butterflies need water, safe water, something that's not so deep that they'll fall in and drown. They need a source of food. And most of our native pollinators can get nectar from non-native plants, but they prefer the native plants, except for zinnias. They love zinnias. All insects love zinnias. Butterflies and moths that are out in my garden have to have a food for their Larva, when they lay their eggs and the caterpillars hatch out, they have to have food for their caterpillars. From all the research I've done and all the reading I've done, I can't find any non-native plant to speak of will host our native moth and butterfly caterpillars. Some of them are what we call specialists. They'll only lay their eggs on one or possibly one or two plants, like the monarch will only lay its eggs on milkweed. That's the only food the monarch butterflies larvae can eat. The spice bush swallowtail can lay its eggs on a spice bush. I think it can also lay it on pipe vine, but I'm not sure. And the pipe vine swallowtail can only lay its eggs on pipe vine. The most important tree for all of our moths and butterflies are the oak trees. Surprisingly, you don't think of butterflies and moths using oak tree, but butterflies and moths lay their eggs on oak trees. It's been found that an oak tree can support over 500 species of butterflies and moths by laying their eggs on the leaves and allowing them to eat the leaves. And the leaves are so high up, you don't even notice the leaf damage from all these butterflies and moths. 
if you replace that oak tree with some of the non-native trees that are people are bringing in, they've studied many, many of the non-natives like the ginkgo and the crepe myrtles and the uh, Bradford pears. And they have found that on those non-natives, on most of them, not a single native insect will lay its eggs uh, for its caterpillar to have food. The most I've ever read about, I think, was one tree hosted one kind of moth or butterfly. So if you want moths and butterflies in your yard, you better have some oak trees. The second best tree for that is the wild cherry. People don't want the wild cherry in their yard, especially near the driveway, because it drops those red berries and it stains the the um cement. But if you put that wild cherry out in a wooded area, if you have a wooded area of your yard, the berries are going to just fall on the ground and the birds will eat them. Uh, but the cherry tree is very important for the larvae of the moths and butterflies and several other uh, insects, as well as the birds that eat the berries. And then the third most important tree is the willow tree. Uh, very seldom do you hear of anybody saying, oh, I built a new house. I'm going to fill my yard with oak trees and wild cherries and willow trees. They say, oh, I want some of those exotic plants, which they don't realize that they've just um, given a death sentence to any native pollinators that they might have in their yard because they will not lay their eggs anywhere that that they know the insect that their babies won't have a place to eat. I always say an oak tree is like the grocery store for an ins- for a butterfly and moth, and they're not going to live two miles down the road in an exotic tree and then fly two miles to the grocery store. They're going to live near their grocery store, so they're going to live near the oak trees. So when you put the when you keep those oak trees in your yard, you just automatically have those ins- those moths and butterflies in your yard. I like the grocery store analogy. Do native plants need a native habitat? Well, it's like any other plants. There are some native plants that will only grow in boggy areas, some that will only grow in hot sunshine, and some that will grow in full shade. So they have to be in the right habitat. Once you get a native plant in the ground, it is almost carefree. They don't need to be fertilized. They don't need to be sprayed because you want the insects to use the plants to keep the next generation alive. Once you get them in the ground and get them established, which, you know, about the first year, you might have to water them some that first summer. But after that, they're they're carefree. I mulch mine sometimes and sometimes I don't. I try to weed them because I don't want all that hen bit all over my yard, but I just don't find a lot of work involved except when I want to collect seeds from them. I work at that every year trying to collect seeds so I can grow some for our plant sale. They're so carefree. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing way to garden. What about soil? You've got on a lot of the newer construction sites where people have you know, built subdivisions and you, if there was any topsoil to begin with, it's pretty much gone. You end up with just backfill clay soils like we have here in our area. Is a native plant going to do well in that type of soil? There are actually some native plants that won't grow in anything except our red clay soil. (laughs) (laughs) Most of them do like a more loamy soil. Now, when I first came here, I had a lot of, I still have a lot of trees and it had never been plowed, had never been farmed. And so I had a lot of good topsoil, but I had a ditch and I started filling that ditch in with my leaves and letting them rot away and and my clippings from my plants. And I haul in chicken litter from my mama's chicken houses and cow manure from daddy's barn. And I filled that ditch up over the years and I've got good soil. 12, 13 inches deep there. But my plants don't grow any better there than they do in an inch or two of topsoil other places. If they have scraped it and they have removed the topsoil, then if you've got the patience, you can leave your leaves on the ground for the next two or three years and they will rot away over the winter and make nice, nice soil if you've got the patience to wait on it. But if you don't, you can probably hire someone to bring you in a load of topsoil and just start out small 
till it in just not too deep. You don't have to do a lot of tilling just to give it some structure so that the water can penetrate to the roots and so that the water doesn't get held too long in that soil the way it will with red clay. It is a, a very tricky thing to get plants growing where they've taken away all the topsoil. And if you're really interested in pollinators and having that going on in your yard, you're going to have to have some blooming plants. Well, how do you get started incorporating native plants into your garden? Well, I went on my first rescue in February. I don't know if you know what plant rescues are. We go to places where they're going to do construction, finished about a three or 400 acre site in Pauling County where they built a, a reservoir and we rescued from there. They, the landowner gives us permission to come on the property and we go as a group of native plant people and we scout around. And when we find a native plant, we dig it and we take it home and we plant it. So my first rescue was in a February. One of the people who first helped establish our local chapter, we climbed up the steep hill to rock outcropping and we found a little plant called hepatica and I brought that home and I just I looked at where I found it which was next to rocks on a steep hill where it got good drainage underneath the oak trees so I brought it home and my yard's fairly flat so I built up some areas around some tree stumps just a little bit and brought in a couple of rocks and planted my hepatica there. And that's been 14 or 15 years ago, I guess. That same hepatica is still there blooming just beautifully. You can put a native plant anywhere you've got the soil and the space to put it. Over the years, have brought in hundreds of native plants into my yard so that at this point, I have more natives than I have non-natives. I still keep my zinnias because they are good for the butterflies. And I still keep my hellebores because I do flowers at church on Sunday and they bloom in February. So, and the daffodils. But those are about the only non-natives I have in my yard at this point. I've taken out all the non-native shrubs and put in native shrubs, except for my husband's camellias and he has to have his camellias. (laughs) It's really not hard to get started with a native, even if you start with just one plant. I do caution people, though, about buying their native plants in a big box store. They used to make them put a sign, a tag in their pots that say they were using a poison called neonicotinoids, which is a systemic. That means the roots, the stems, the leaves, the blooms, the pollen, every part of that plant has the poison in it. So if the insects go for the pollen they get poison. If they go for the nectar, they get poison. If they eat the leaves, they get poison. They made them start putting a tag in there to warn you that it had had poisons in it. But instead of saying this plant contains neonicotinoids, which can cause damage to insects, they put a little tag in there that said this plant has been treated to prevent the damage by insects. Makes it sound like a great thing. But if you want the insects, that's a terrible thing. So if you want native plants, the best place to buy them is either a native plant nursery. They will not use uh, artificial chemicals on their plants or at the Native Plant Society plant sales. The state Native Plant Society has a plant sale in the spring and in the fall, although with COVID they didn't have it this year. And our chapter had a September sale and had a grape sale, and we're planning another one in April. I grow most of the plants that our chapter sells, and I don't use any poisons in my yard. My plants are good for the wildlife that might want to munch on them. Well, let's say you decided, or you didn't know, and you used some spray in your yard like that. Is one it eventually work out of the plant? It will. And I think I've read that the neonicotinoids would, would make its way out of the plant in two to three years, but then you've lost two to three years of, of uh, generations of your insects. I'm not sure about that. I just know that it stays in for a while. I don't have lawn. I am in the process of installing a native clumpy sedge in my front yards under my tree line. And in my backyard, I'm putting in a small clumpy grass that has beautiful little curly brown leaves in the winter and then it greens up in the summer called poverty oats grass. And both of those will support wildlife. I like my grasses. (laughs) So you've named a couple of grasses. Any other favorites? 
the pink muley grass is not strictly native to our area, but it will grow here and it is a native grass, so insects can use it. Generally speaking, you should try to stick with what we call ecotypes, which are plants that have come from your growing region. And that usually means within 60 miles of where you live. If you go rescue a plant, try to get it from 60 miles. If you get seeds, try to get those seeds that were taken from plants about 60 miles away. Because even though it might be a purple coneflower that grew down in South Georgia and the same echinacea grows here in Carroll County, because of their salty air and their different kind of soil, the plants that they're growing down there may have a tendency to not be happy in my Georgia clay soil up here with my non-salty air and my drier weather and my cooler temperatures. So I try to get my plants locally sourced if I can. Well, I always know when I get them from the Georgia Native Plant Society, they grow their plants from seeds at a little propagation place at Stone Mountain Park, and they always grow with locally sourced seed. We just have to be careful about where we get those plants. And another thing to consider when you're trying to start a garden that will attract pollinators is they've made all these wonderful plants with the double blooms that used to just have a row of petals. Now they've got row upon row and row up of petals. And what they do when they hybridize like that, you lose something in order to gain something. You gain more petals on the flower, which gives it more color. You usually lose the nectar and the pollen. They don't produce pollen, so they don't uh, produce seeds for the most part. So the insects can't use those, even though they look beautiful. The insects are not there for the blooms. The blooms are only there to say, hey, here I am, come get some nectar. And they come down because they see the color, and that tells them that's a plant that probably has nectar and pollen. And that's why they visit the plant. They visit it for the nectar and the pollen. They don't visit it for the petals themselves, but the color does help direct them there. You have to be real careful about buying cultivars because they may not bring the critters into your yard that you're hoping to get. You're blowing through a lot of my questions, and I'm glad. Well, I think one of the biggest concerns nationwide right now should be uh, habitat loss. A bird can only live somewhere where it can make a nest and raise its babies and feed its babies. Since 1970, the United States alone has lost about three billion, that's billion with a B, birds because of loss of habitat. They have no place to live. They have no place to lay their eggs. They have no food nearby. And worldwide, about 12% of all bird species are threatened with extinction because of loss of habitat. comes with cutting down the rainforest, put in coffee farms, that comes with clearing land all over the United States to build more housing and build more cities and build more big buildings. And they don't do anything to put back in the plants that will help those birds and insects survive. So I read a, a really a really great book if you want to know more about why you should be doing native plants. It's called Bringing Nature Home by Doug Tallamy. He's an entomologist. It was an eye-opening book for me. It totally changed my whole way of thinking about gardening and growing plants. In his book, he said that within the next century, a fourth of all the bird species in the world will have disappeared because of loss of habitat and food sources. People might say, well, I don't like birds. Well, birds do a lot to control the insect population. Hummingbirds, people put the nectar out, but hummingbirds, most of their diet consists of small insects like mosquitoes. They eat the sugar water when they can get it if they're lazy, but most of their diet is insects. So yeah, you need birds to control the insects that might be pests to you or pests to your plant. And it has to be a balance. You have to have the birds to control the insects, but you have to have enough food sources and nectar sources for the insects to produce enough insects to feed the birds without decimating the insect populations. We've messed up our balance by choosing to not do our yards the way nature did our yards. If you're designing a garden, what's a good combination of native plants? 
First of all, you need to research, does it need sun or shade or part sun or part shade? What are its water re- moisture requirements? What kind of soil does it require? And once you narrow it down, then you start looking at particular plants. One of my favorite combinations is my purple coneflowers, which are a daisy-like flower, but they have pale purplish uh, petals with a sort of an orange bronzy center. And I pair those with a yellow plant. Purple and yellow looks real good together. I also put white false indigo with those because I like to have the different textures. The coneflower has very large leaves and a very large petal. The wild false indigo has clusters of small white blooms with a silvery green leaf. The Maryland golden aster has a clump of leaves near the ground with a tall stalk with a cluster of yellow blooms on the top. I also like to do what I call succession planting. If this plant is blooming in the spring, I want to plant something near it that as soon as that one stops its bloom cycle, the next one is ready to start its bloom cycle. So you keep constant blooms in the garden. Milkweed will go with almost everything because you you can grow white milkweed, pink milkweed, orange milkweed, yellow milkweed. So plant combinations for that are, are just endless. And that's the most important insect. That's the most important plant for milkweeds. I think about 10 years ago, we had like four or five million monarchs that migrated from the United States back down to Mexico for their winter grounds. And last year they had less than a million. So in about a decade, we've lost three-fourths of our monarch butterflies. The main reason for that is loss of habitat because they're cutting down the trees that they use to roost in in Mexico. And also we don't grow milkweed. Milkweed used to grow natively or just naturally in the ditches along the sides of the road. DOTs all over the country decide to be a great idea to spray the roadsides. And when they do, they kill all the milkweed. So there's seldom see any milkweed growing on the sides of the roads like we used to years and years ago. We had a nice clump here in Carrollton growing in the median of the bypass. And every year the week it started blooming, they mowed it down when they were mowing the roadsides. The monarchs are totally at our mercy to plant the milkweeds that they need. And once you get the milkweeds started, they will take care of themselves. They don't, you don't ever really have to do anything with those. They come in so many different colors that you can put a milkweed with almost anything in the garden. And they have a long bloom period and you'll get leaves eaten up by the monarch. I collected monarchs this year and I brought some of the caterpillars in because grasshoppers will eat the eggs and that sort of thing. And I raised them inside and I tagged them with a little white tag on their wing and let them go. And if one of my one of my monarchs makes it back to Mexico and they find it, they will send me a message telling me my butterfly made it back to Mexico. You ever had them let you know that? This is the first year I've tagged, so I don't know. Oh. I did also give some to a, a young lady in second grade. I gave her one of my cages and I milkweed and some caterpillars and had her do a journal. And she measured her caterpillars every day and wrote descriptions. And then she finally released them. And she was so excited. All it's taken, because now every time I see her, she wants to know more about plants and she wants to know more about gardening and wants to know more about how she can get some more butterflies in her yard. So we have to start when they're young. Yeah, yeah. Plant those early seeds of interest there. What are your earliest garden memories? The first gardening I ever did was when I was in third grade. My third grade teacher, Miss Pauline Teal, she was a wonderful teacher. She had us to plant pumpkin seeds in our milk cartons after lunch one day, and we put them in the windowsill. That was back when classrooms had windows all the way across the room. We put our milk cartons along the windows, and when they sprouted and grew, we used them for science class, and we talked about seeing that little plant pop up out of the ground. We learned about the life cycle and all the parts of the plant, and then we took them home. 
I had never had Halloween pumpkins. I, I've seen them in the grocery store, I guess, but we didn't know anything about pumpkins. And my mother never cooked a pumpkin. And she grew our vegetable garden every year. It was famous all over about Georgia for her vegetables that she shared with everybody. But she allowed me to put my pumpkin vine in her garden. Now, I don't know if you've ever grown a pumpkin, but they ramble all over the garden. They make stems that'll be 20 feet long. And she let my pumpkin ramble all over her garden. And it made a great big, huge pumpkin. And so we had a Halloween jack-o'-lantern from the pumpkin. And that was my first gardening experience. (laughs) Did you have pumpkins uh, years after that? Nope. Never planted another pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) She decided she didn't want to have to hold her plants around all those pumpkin vines. So I don't know that I ever asked to plant another pumpkin after that. Maybe I did know, but I don't remember her telling me no. One experience that my husband still laughs at me when we got married, he was in school in Atlanta and we moved up there to an apartment. A really nice apartment with that nice turf grass and little patio out back. And I'm a country girl. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> well, I dug up the turf about a foot wide all the way around our patio and planted okra. <laughs> and then it was just getting ready to pick when he finished school and we moved home. So I don't know if they dug it up and put the turf back in or if the next, the next render had okra all summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Become infected with the gardening bug. You can't not be a gardener. You got to have your hands in the dirt somewhere, don't you? Yep. That's my most serene and my most laid back is I've been out in the garden all morning digging in the dirt, planting stuff for the plant sale. Well, tell me about the plant sale. What type of things are you going to have available? The fall plant sale, well, I took four truckloads of plants over there and we had some trees. We had dogwood trees and redbud trees, some um, buckeyes, red buckeyes, white buckeyes, and a few small oak, a few uh, a few other trees. And then we had shrubs like the oak leaf hydrangea and spice bush and button bush and some of the ones that are incredibly important for our pollinators. And then we had perennials. We had coneflowers, stokes. We had several kinds of asters, blue-eyed grass, which is in the iris family. We had just an assortment of the native perennials, and we had quite a number of kinds of ferns, our sale. But we also had two nurseries to come and bring plants, and we sold thousands of plants in three hours. I think everybody is just so sick of being indoors, and we had it outdoors under the roof of our cattle stalls at the Ag Center. We had people lined up an hour before the sale started, and everybody wore masks, and we let them in a few at the time, and they browsed, and they bought, and we put them in a holding area for them so they continue to browse and not have to told them around. So we try to accommodate our customers as much as we can. (laughs) People were so excited to get those native plants. And I hear more and more people. I had somebody at church who came up to me Sunday and said, I'm beginning to get interested in native plants. Tell me what's the best way to get started. And I said, join the Native Plant Society and go on a rescue. I learned more about native plants by going on rescues and really diligently having to look to try to find something that I could identify. We always have a facilitator who's one of our leaders who's trained. We always have a facilitator who goes with any new person into a rescue and walks along with them and says, oh, that's a Pipsisawa right there. You might want that, but it's you got to get plenty of soil when you dig that up because it likes the soil it's growing in. It has microorganisms in it that it needs. And you walk along and say, oh, look at that bud. If you look at that bud, you can tell that's a hickory tree. And here's how you can tell that. And and look at that plant. You see the blooms on that. Lots and lots, lots of blooms. And pull a leaf off and snap the leaf in half. And if white milky sap comes up, you found a milkweed. People are beginning to get more interested. And we saw people all the way from in Atlanta coming out here to our little plant sale because they were so hungry to get out and about and get some plants. What's your favorite native tree? 
I know some people consider a red bud to be weedy because they sprout seeds everywhere. But I guess my favorite native tree is the red bud tree because it's one of the first to bloom, which means those pollinators that come out early have something to eat. They have a pollen and nectar plant there. They have the most incredible hot pink blooms. If you've ever seen a row of red buds growing down the side of a highway, it's just a, a breathtaking sight. I love it. It's twigs. You can identify it because it's twigs or zigzags. And anytime you walk through the woods and you see that smaller limbs in a zigzag pattern, you know you found a red bud. They're understory trees, so they don't get really, really big. If you don't want the seeds growing there, you just go out there and take a stick and and, and sort of knock seed pods off and collect them. And you don't have seeds coming up everywhere. But I don't mind if they come up in my yard. I just dig them up and pot them up for plant cell. <laughs> I particularly like the red bud myself. I think when the crossover with the dogwoods and the red buds are blooming, uh, that's a huge combination that I just really love. Oh, yeah. Well, our Native Plant Society is doing a restoration of a walking trail here in Carrollton. It's 40 acres. It was started by the Forestry Service, but when they had their personnel cuts several years ago, they had to abandon it. They just didn't have people take care of it. And it kind of laid idle for maybe 15 years, and then Native Plant Society took it over. We are slowly getting out the privet, probably cleared a quarter to a half acre of privet out of that 40 acres. We worked diligently at pulling out the privet, the honeysuckle, the kudzu, and this new grass called microstigium grass that's coming up everywhere that's next to impossible. It's an annual, but it's still terribly hard to get rid of. As we pull it out, we replace it with a native tree. If we pull out a privet by the roots, we put a native in its root hole. If we cut a privet because it's too big to pull out, we drill a hole and put some herbicide down in that hole so that it won't get out on the ground and kill that stump. And then we go in beside it and plant a native tree or shrub. We've got an area where Carol EMC people sent us some volunteers one day. They do a certain number of days. They do volunteer work in the community. And they came out and worked for us probably two or three hours. And they cleared about a quarter of an acre of privet, just as clean and pristine as it could be. It had been impassable. You could not walk through it. It was full of privet and honeysuckle and you'd stumble over briars. They cleared that for us. And we went in immediately and started putting in redbuds and dogwoods and silverbell trees. And so we got probably 15 or 20 trees in there now. And we have started, every time we go on a rescue, we dig as many Christmas ferns as we can lug out of the woods because they stay green year round. And we're doing a, a ground cover of Christmas ferns under all these trees right next to a creek. We've got picnic tables there. It's a very pleasant place to be. Yeah, that sounds like a very exciting, pleasant, as you said, but a place to, to just really go and let your mind rest and, and connect back with nature probably seven or eight miles of trails, but so many of them are overgrown. And we only have about six people who work regularly and we all in our 60s and 70s. So <laughs> we're kind of slow at getting it done, but we're putting in new bridges over any ditches or streams so that there's trails are safe for walkers and joggers. Uh, we've got a nice bark mulch on all the trails. It's a soft surface trail and we have a beautiful 18 mile cement walking trail all the way around the city. Some people just, especially if you've got a back problem, a solid surface like a concrete walking trail is not necessarily the best place for you to be. A lot of people hop off of that trail onto ours and walk the, the soft surface trails. And we have one member who has a birder and he has been out and been mapping out the birds that he's found out there. And the last sport was we had like 30 or 35 species of birds out there where when we first started working on it, we didn't have very many because we didn't have a lot of trees that produce fruits that the birds need. Many, many of our birds, they're either called granivorous, which means they eat the seeds off the ground or they're berry eaters or they're insectivores 
carnivores, they eat insects. Most of our adult birds eat the berries. And so if you don't have a lot of berry producing plants, you won't have many birds. Every time we pull out anything, we pulled out a whole bunch of invasives, privet in one area and put choke berries in there because they will bloom in the spring and provide nectar. And then they have these big clusters of red berries that the birds just adore. When we pulled out the privet, we put in red buds, which the birds will eat those seeds. And we put in the silver bells. The, well, the birds don't pack those seeds, but they do get nectar from it. And then we put in the dogwoods and we've stuck in some small things like the, the choke berries and the grancy graybeards and things that'll have seeds for them. Even though the adult bird eats seeds, about 90% of our birds that eat seeds have to have soft-bodied insects to feed their babies. So you've got a cardinal out there that eats seeds when it's an adult. If it's got babies in the nest, it has to find soft-bodied insects like caterpillars to feed its birds. That's why it's important to have oak trees because all those insects up in those oak trees are carried back to the nest. If you take a little bird like a chickadee and it has three or four baby birds in its nest, it has to feed that bird like every three minutes from six o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night. And to get three or four baby birds out of that nest, they have to haul between six and 9,000 insects to that nest during the 16 to 18 days before they fledge. Those are some busy mamas and daddies. If they can't find the insects, they can't feed their babies and the babies will die. And we just can't afford to keep losing the generation of birds every time they lay their eggs just because mothers can't find enough food for them. More native plant and wildflower talk coming up. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Your favorite shrub. Oh, gosh. I guess button bush. I don't know if you know what a button bush is. No, tell me. It gets about four and a half feet high. And when it blooms, it has this big white ball. The bloom is shaped almost like a golf ball, a little less than a golf ball size. If you look very closely at that ball, it has a very tiny center if you were to peel the flowers off. And it has little white tubular flowers that are just packed in against each other to completely cover center of that thing to make an absolutely perfect round ball of white bloom. From a distance, it looks like one big red flower. But if you get up close, you can see all these little bitty flowers. Flowers make up that one ball. And then when the flowers uh, fall off, of course, they've been pollinated by the insects that are using the nectar. And it forms a little green ball that turns brown into the fall. And then I collect the seeds and plant them. They grow in, in slightly moist places. They can grow in some sun and some shade. They can grow in full shade. They, they bloom better with a little bit of sun. But I guess that's my favorite just because it, it's so unusual. Hardly anybody ever hears of a button bush. <laughs> I think that might be my first time for hearing about it. Do you have a second favorite? I guess my second favorite shrub would be a viburnum because they make clusters of flowers turn into clusters of berries for the birds. And there are so many kinds of viburnums. You can get viburnums that are 12, 15 feet tall. You can get viburnums that only get five or six feet tall. There's just a wide variety of sizes and shapes and bloom times. And they all make clusters of flowers and they all make clusters of berries. How about your favorite native flower? People ask me that all the time, and I'll say, well, I'll just be honest with you. My favorite flower is whichever one's blooming right now. <laughs> I guess my favorite is the purple coneflower. It comes in a lot of different kinds. We've got Tennessee coneflower and purple coneflower and pale coneflower, just several different kinds. I love those because it blooms forever if you keep it deadheaded, cut off the old blooms before they make seeds. Plants are there to bloom and set seeds so they can grow more of themselves next year. They're not there for my pleasure or enjoyment. They're not really there for the birds, and they're not really there for the insects. They use the insects to pollinate their flowers to make their seeds, and they use the birds to 
to scatter their seeds, but that's not their purpose of being there. Their purpose of being there is to reproduce. If you deadhead them, then they say, oh gosh, I can't make any seeds. I'm going to have to put up some more stems and make some more blooms. And so they bloom again. And then you cut them off and they bloom again. So I get like six months or more of blooms from my purple cone flower. When I finally let them go to seed, I leave the seed heads on there. I still have stalks sticking up all over my garden. And it looks like kind of a sweet gum ball with little spikes on it. You want to sit out there and watch those goldfinches will come in and they will sit on the top of that seed head. Wind will have that stalk blowing all around, but they just cling to it and they will just devour those seeds. So they bring the birds in, but other birds will eat them too, but mainly the goldfinches. They love those coneflower seeds. (laughs) Now that's my favorite summer flower. (laughs) Got a favorite winter flower? I do have a favorite winter flower. That would be hepaticas, mainly because sentimental reasons. That was the first one I ever rescued. I've had hepaticas blooming since late January, and I have some that have just now started blooming. Well, describe what uh his common name is liverwort. There was a, a time when people looked at a plant and if they could see a shape of the plant that looked like a body part, they would say, oh, that pl- like three lobes of the liver. So they called it a liverwort and they believed that they could treat conditions of the liver with the liverwort. Some of their predictions were correct. Some of them were not. And you don't need to just go out grazing in your native garden because you don't know what you're going to be eating. But it has a three lobed leaf and it's very low to the ground. The leaf stems only get about an inch and a half, two inches tall. The leaf is probably an inch and inch inch and a half across. It's green and then it turns kind of a mottled green and purple. The leaves persist right on into the winter and my leaves never did completely disappear this year. And then in the spring, new leaves come up and they'll be the green again. And then those old leaves will start dying back. So you always have some color there. Then in January, February, March, you'll see a little fuzzy stalk come up and at the end of the little fuzzy stalk will be a white or a pinkish purple or a lavender. Sometimes they're almost blue. It just depends on where yours came from and what the parent plant looked like that will have a multi-petal bloom that's probably about a half inch maybe across. When those petals fold out, the inside has such a an incredible number of anthers with the pollen on the ends and all the parts inside that allow the insects. Not many insects are out at the time they're blooming, but there are a few early little, little bitty tiny bees and that will pollinate. They're just so intricate on the inside. You could just sit and study them forever trying to count how many different parts are inside those flowers. They're just beautiful little plants. Hard to find. You have to really look for those. I don't know if I've ever seen a nursery that I've visited that has hepaticas. I have found some online that sell hepatica rootstock, and you can get a start from that. I've still got my original ones that I dug out years ago. Now, you mentioned one of the more famous invasive species in privet earlier. Are native plants, are there any that we need to be concerned about that are invasive? There are some that can be invasive, but... If you've got a place like our 40 acres out there, if we plant a red bud and it makes a lot of seeds and they grow up everywhere, we don't care. In your yard, vines can spread. I don't really call them invasive. I call them aggressive. Privets, to me, are invasive because they are everywhere and you can't get rid of them. And and the birds carry the seeds everywhere. The birds will eat privet seeds, but they will eat other seeds if you provide the other seeds. Anything in the mint family, we have a lot of plants that are in the mint family, like mountain mint. When I did the butterfly count this past year, mountain mint was the number one attractor of pollinators in the garden. So I keep mountain mint for my vegetable garden because it's blooming when my vegetables are blooming. It grows with underground runners. And if it starts spreading outside where you want it, you just grab it and it's very shallow. You can just pull those runners up when the soil's moist, throw it that way, or you can dig it out. 
or you can put it in a pot and try to keep it from coming out of the drainage hole and rooting to the ground. But people hear the word mint and they think of that peppermint and spearmint, which is not native. And it does really take over. But the mountain mint, mine has spread from a six inch diameter to maybe a two foot diameter in the last five years. But I don't care because I've got a big flower bed out there and other things growing up amongst it. So it's not smothering anything out. There's some others like the bee balms that have the square stems like the mints do. And they will also spread with those underground runners. There are some that are aggressive and there are some that reseed that are aggressive. I would rather have an aggressive plant that the insects can use to replace a plant that is aggressive that the insects don't use. And I've read reports about people clearing areas where no native plants had been seen in years. And as soon as they cleared out all the privet, the natives started coming right back in. They may have been there and just dormant because they weren't getting enough sunlight, or they may have seeds that had been dropped by birds that didn't get enough light to sprout. So if you get those privets out, those natives have come back. So there's really no reason to have the non-native invasives if you can put other plants in there. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have Hmm, probably 6,000 kinds of plants. I have winter blooming plants, spring blooming plants, summer blooming plants, and fall blooming plants. With my natives, I have something that blooms from January until the first freeze because the first frost doesn't kill a lot of them, which is in, what, middle October? About eight and a half, nine months out of the year, I have something blooming. I have sun garden that's probably starts out at the end of the driveway and, and grows wider as it goes back. It's probably 100 feet long, completely filled in with native flowers and shrubs. All of my front yard, side yard, and backyard are woody, and they all are filled with ferns, trilliums, jack-in-the-pulpits, shooting stars, native iris. Right off the top of my head, I can't even tell you all the different kinds that are out there. I've got most of my plants labeled. I print out labels and put them on little metal stakes because if I don't, I end up digging up something that I planted because I don't remember it's there <laughs> when it's dormant. <laughs> my neighbors come by, and I have a little old lady, man and woman who come by often, and they stop and chit-chat, and they said, I hope you don't mind, but we walk through your garden sometimes so we can read those labels because we won't know what those plants are. And I said, no, I'm trying to educate myself as well as other people about what's growing that's native in here. I like to collect seeds. I plant a lot of plants that make seeds and then I grow those seeds out for plant sales. So I collect my seeds with a little bag that I get from the bridal section at Hobby Lobby that has a little draw on it. And I just put the little bag over the seed head when they're getting ripe. And it's a thin fabric. So the wind keeps it dry. So the seeds don't rot. And when the seed pods explode, they just drop into the bag. And then I go out there and just take the bags off and I have the seeds collected. So I had plants in my front yard and that same little old couple came by and they were asking me about this plant and that one. And then she said, but I do have one question. And I said, what's that? And she said, why do you put socks on your plants? <laughs> Uh, so when I explained it to her, she said, that makes perfect sense. And it's the ideal way to catch your seeds because so many of them, you have to wait until they're ready to explode and be right there when they're ready to explode. And if you're a day late, you don't get any seeds. The very best plant in my yard, I guess, as far as people ooh and ah over those, one is called Spigelia, which is the common name is Indian pink. It has the most incredibly red bloom that's tubular shaped with yellow tips. And it's a very favorite of the hummingbird. Birds, it lights up a garden. It has seeds that if you don't catch them on the exact day they decide to ripen, you don't get those. I put socks over some, uh, some of the blooms and I leave some to explode and reseed in my own yard, and then I grow. I plant the seeds to grow out. Then the other really great one is a native orchid. Somebody asked me yesterday. I said something about my native orchids, and she said, "I didn't know we had orchids in Georgia." Well, they don't look like the orchids that you wore to your senior prom. You probably didn't wear one to your senior prom, but the, <laughs> not the orchids that the girls wore to their senior prom. They're 
They're not exotic orchids, but we have orchids that bloom almost all spring and summer. In fact, we dug some orchids yesterday on our rescue. I have one that's called a yellow fringed orchid, and it's the brightest orange you've ever seen, but they call it a yellow fringed orchid. Every time somebody comes in my yard and sees that, they say, where did you get that? And where can I get one? Do you have any to share? And I say, these don't reseed it readily, and it takes years for them to come up, so no, I don't have any to share, but you can find them online if you want to pay the price for them. I don't remember where I got mine. Then there's another one that has big, wide, strappy leaves, and the plant itself will get two to three feet across, puts up a stalk, and it will have a white bloom on it that if you measure from one tip of the bloom to the other side on that other tip of the bloom, that bloom is probably six or eight inches wide, and it's called spider lily, not the red spider lilies that most people are familiar with, but this is the native spider lily, and it is an incredible flower just for its massive size and the size of the blooms, and they they bloom successively, so the blooms open up on different days, and so you have a long period of bloom time. Those are easy to grow from seeds, and they're easy to to grow from bulbs, so I share a lot of those. When you're planting a, a garden of any kind, whether it be native or not native, you need to consider color combinations, but more importantly than that, you need to consider bloom times, and you need to consider texture. If you've got something like that spider lily that has that wide leaf with that bold bloom, you want something that's got a smaller leaf and a, maybe a, a cut leaf or a fringed leaf kind of a thing with a smaller cluster of blooms to plant with that so that one doesn't detract too much from the other, but they're both noticeable. And I think a lot of the problem, a lot of mistakes people make is they don't know how to combine their plants to use the right textures together, the right colors together. You have to be mindful of the size, the height of the plant too, because I move plants constantly because I just stick them in the ground and then I say, oh, that's too tall there. I got to move it. I move it at the end of the season. But garden is never finished. I say my garden has wheels on it. All my plants have wheels on them because they get moved. It's a work in progress. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The texture, I think, is something that most folks could improve on. If just to understand texture, I think there's so much focus put on color because it's such an emotional art element of the landscape that we totally ignore texture. I've heard it said if you could take a photo of your garden in black and white, you know, what would stand out? And that would be the texture. I think we yeah. really could improve yeah. all of our gardens just from a visual aesthetic standpoint with just paying attention to texture. Yes, absolutely. And vertical gardening too. We don't do enough vertical gardening. We've got so many beautiful vines. The coral honeysuckle is the first plant the hummingbirds look for in my yard when they make their northern migration. And it blooms for a long time. And it's absolutely stunning. Just clusters of long red tubular blooms hanging down from that coral honeysuckle. We've got the pipe vine, which has very unnoticeable blooms, but the leaves are big, lime green heart-shaped leaves. The pipe vine swallowtail depends on the pipe vine vine or its caterpillars. Then we have the cross vine, which grows up the sides of the trees. I have one in the backyard that's yellow with a sort of an orangey red throat and one in a tree in the front yard that's red on the outside instead of yellow. We have two or three native clematis that make small blooms, but they're always kind of bell-shaped and the ends of the petals curve backwards, purples and pinks and whites. And, and then we have the yellow passion vine. We have the purple passion vine. And that passion vine is the host plant for the Gulf fritillaries and the painted fritillaries. And if you don't have pipe vine, you don't get those two fritillaries in your yard. We actually have a climbing hydrangea. Most people don't notice the climbing hydrangea because it doesn't bloom until it gets up in the trees where it can get some sun. So trellising and using vines on fencing can add so much to a garden and people just ignore the vines. Can the vines be harmful to trees? 
most of our native vines are not harmful to trees. They don't get any nutrients from the trees and they don't get so massive that they overpower the trees. That's one of the big problems with ivy is that it grows up the trees and it gets so thick, it holds so much moisture that causes root limbs to start to rot and it becomes so heavy that it can break limbs. Plus it invades my yard from three sides. (laughs) The non-native vines like ivy and the non-native wisteria, you see that all along the roads. I had a friend who called me one day and she said, what's that purple vine that's grown on the side of the road and where can I get it? And I said, I love you too much to tell you where you can get some wisteria. (laughs) You don't want that in your yard. I have a native wisteria. Most people don't realize we have a native wisteria. And I've had it on my trellis out in the backyard for about 10 years. And in those 10 years, I might have pulled up four or five suckers that ran about two feet out from the vine. And I just pulled them up and clipped them off and potted them and gave them away. And they bloom with the same clusters of purple blooms as the non-native, but they're not aggressive and they're not invasive the way the the non-native is. If you look, almost every one of those plants that I've talked about as being invasive come from China or Japan. Yeah. Of course, our founding fathers were some of the worst for bringing in non-native plants because George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin kind of had a competition going on to see who could bring in the most exotic plants for their gardens. And you'll still see in Mount Vernon and around Monticello that they still have a lot of those non-natives that they brought in. And many of them escape from gardens. And that's where we get a lot of this. And like the Bradford pear was genetically engineered. They said they weren't sterile, but when they brought in a different pear, they found out it was pollinating the Bradford pears. And that's why if you go up some of the roads here where they've clear cut it, the first thing coming back on those properties are the Bradford pears and they come up in the thousands. Yeah, I know land that used to be a pasture and it's amazing. It's just like a giant Bradford pear grove. I don't know how you could even safely walk into that area without getting punctured. Thorns and they stink when they bloom. Oh, I wouldn't want one anywhere near my house. And But I have a neighbor who's had them. And so I have to occasionally pull Bradford pears up from my yard. And I have a neighbor who has that golden rain tree, which is very invasive. And I occasionally pull up golden rain trees. And I have to kind of stay on the alert in my yard. Mahonia, which is invasive, is all over the empty lot next to me. And we cut it back when it gets too near our property and pull up the seedlings out of our yard. Neighbors who don't get rid of their privets. So I'm still having to fight some privet, but I haven't had any big privet on my property in the in a good long time because I get them them when they're small enough to pull up by hand. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, gosh. I guess the biggest mistake I made was not taking care of my drainage problems before I got my gardens in. And now I'm having to go through some of my gardens and dig out to put in drainage pipes because my driveway is still a a gravel driveway and dirt driveway and the water all washes down the driveway and goes across the backyard and washes everything away. So I have plumbing pipes, PVC pipes laying around all over the yard and new downspout stuff all over the yard waiting to get somebody in here to do some drainage work for me. It's going to mean tearing up some of my flower beds. So I guess that was the biggest mistake I made. You got a second one? And I guess the other mistake was planting shrubs and things too close to the house or too close to each other. Because when I first started landscaping 35, 40 years ago, I was plugging things in and I was not paying attention to the spacing. And I've had to remove a lot of shrubs because of that. I, I guess it's just beginner's mistakes because I had never gardened or I had never done any yard work as far as planting for because my mother just had flower beds all over the place. She didn't have shrubs and that sort of thing. So I'd never lived in a house that actually had had shrubs around it and I didn't know a whole lot about having shrubbery beds. So I guess my second biggest mistake was the way I planted my shrubs. But I've had to pull them all out because they weren't native so I could replace them with natives. (laughs) (laughs) In your native plant journey, who has been your biggest influencer? 
Well, his name is Mike Strickland. I call him my guru. He's the one who took me on my first rescue. He's and his wife and my good friend Flo Hayes were instrumental in starting our Native Plant Society. Mike led me on my first rescue with a group and he stayed right by my side and he walked by me and he said, oh, you know what that is. You know what that is. Just think a minute, think a minute. And I'd say, no, I don't know what that is. And then he would tell me and then he would get down there and he would point it out and say, okay, look at this leaf. See how it's attached to that stem? That'll tell you that this is this plant. And he walked over those woods with me probably two or two and a half hours, pointing out things like that on every plant that we saw so that I could remember those plants. Now I'm a facilitator. And when I take people into the woods, I'm nowhere near as good as Mike was. When I go into the woods with them now, I try to do the same thing for them so that they truly feel confident to go into those woods and start finding those plants and pulling them out and taking them home with. I give all of my credit to Mike Street. What trends are you seeing in the native plants being used in landscape gardening? We have a new member who is a developer. He puts in large subdivisions. And since he's joined the Native Plant Society, he has started using native trees and shrubs around some of his houses. And his berms and screens that he wants to put up, it is native shrubs that he's using for his screens now. And I think that's a trend that may start picking up because once he gets those in the ground and gets them established, those homeowners won't ever have to do anything with them. I see that as a trend. And I see more and more people who are asking questions questions about native plants who've never known about native plants before. I'm on Facebook and I have a, I actually have a West Georgia chapter Facebook page and I feature a lot of our plants so people can become familiar with them. And I share posts from other people who are native plant gardeners. And it's amazing how many people are coming on saying, I didn't even know this kind of thing existed. I'm so excited to find this. And how many people nationwide are coming on these sites now saying, okay, I've just taken out all my turf grass. What do I do now? Where do I start? Wildlife Society, NWF, National Wildlife Federation. They have a good website you can go on and put in your zip code and it will give you a list of trees, shrubs, and perennials you can grow in your zip code. And it will even tell you which butterflies and moths use your plants. There's a Georgia chapter, the Native Plant Society, the West Georgia chapter. We've got a chapter in, in Douglas, Georgia, down in South Georgia. We've got one up in the mountains called Redbud Chapter. All those people are getting all kinds of questions from newbies who don't know anything about natives, but are wanting to grow them. The Georgia Native Plant Society actually has a symposium every year because of the COVID. They're going to do it virtually. When I went to my first symposium, that's when I realized this is the right way to do it. Individuals who go out there and turn their little space into a habitat haven for our native plants and our native wildlife. You can't feed somebody from a big corporation. You can't feed somebody from something coming out of Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, Georgia, but you can feed them from something coming out of a native habitat. Can you grow native plants with introduced plants? Sure you can. I've got zinnias planted out there right beside my milkweed, and zinnias are not native. I've still got quite a few non-native flowers that I keep because I know that they draw in the pollinators for the nectar. I guess the main thing is you need to make sure that that non-native is not going to be so aggressive that it overpowers your native because you might plant something out there that makes so many seeds that your non-native cannot compete with it. You were talking about seed collection earlier. When should I take those seed and how should I process those seed, I guess, from collection on to when should I actually plant them. There are two lines of thought on that. I used to be the collect them and store them and bring them out in the winter and plant them. Now I'm more in line with, hey, Mother Nature doesn't go out there and collect those seeds and put them in a refrigerator for three months, let them get stratified and then go out and plant them. She just throws them out on the ground and they grow. <laughs> so I I do grow a lot of seeds because I want to be able to take them out of their seed flats and pot them up in pots and grow them out for our plant sale. So I do collect seeds and grow them that way. Stokes asters, I cut those back and have three successions of blooms. And on the third succession of 
of blooms, I don't cut them back. I let them go to seed. I just collect that seed pod when it starts to turn brown and I take some of them. And if there's some new place in my own garden, I want some more of those. I just throw them out there. I save some of them. I take them. And since Mother Nature is dropping them on the ground in late August and September, I plant mine in flats in late August and September. A lot of my seeds that need a cold period, they call it cold stratification. You put it in the refrigerator and there's all kinds of stuff like you have a 90 days of cold and then 90 days of hot and then 90 days of cold, which is basically one winter, one summer, and one winter. So it takes a year and a half to grow those. If you put them out in the garden, Mother Nature gives them that cold period and that hot period and that cold period. Some of them pop up immediately. Some of them take two or three years for the seed to sprout. So you have to be patient with them. I use milk jugs. I cut the top half off just below the handle. I put my punch holes in the bottom, put the soil in there, sprinkle the seeds, take the top, shove it down into the bottom long enough to seal it up, take the cap off. And then when it rains, it waters them in the milk jug. And then I take the top off in the spring and pull them out and plant them. I also use flats where I just sprinkle them on the flat. Like there's a cardinal flower that when you pop the seed pod, those seeds are like tiny specks of dust you might sweep up off around on your floor. I mean, so tiny that you can't tell one seed from another. They're too tiny. Even with a hand lens, you can't tell. We find the seed. I made the mistake one year of just sprinkling them. I probably had 10,000 little baby cardinal flowers to come up in one little flat. So you have to just sacrifice some and pull out your healthier looking ones and plant those up and sacrifice some. There are other seeds that are huge, like the spider lily I talked about a while ago makes a seed bigger than a, a green bean seed. They're easy to plant, easy to spot, easy to pick, and easy to plant. There are websites you can go to that just tell you specifically how to plant, when to plant, and how to plant a specific seed, whether it needs light to germinate, whether it needs dark, whether it needs a cold period, or whether it needs to be planted immediately. Because some plants, some seeds, if you let them dry out, they won't grow at all. They won't ever germinate. The seed starting really depends on what the seed is. Go back and say, what did Mother Nature do? When people say, do you have to fertilize native plants? Do you have to weed native plants? And I said, do you ever see anybody running? through the woods fertilizing native plants. They, they get fertilization mainly from the leaves that fall. That adds nitrogen back to the soil. And native plants look almost garish if you do a lot of fertilizing because they become too much. They're too overpowering. We, we have one nursery I know of that fertilizes his heavily and his, his uh, workers are trying to encourage him not to fertilize so much because plants are big and lush, but it gives the buyer a mistaken idea of how that plant's going to look all the time unless they do constantly fertilize. With my native plants, I have compost bins and I take my compost and put it in a five gallon bucket and drop a little uh, aquarium pump down in there and let it pump oxygen in it for about 24 hours. And then I take that out. I drain it, strain it, pour that compost tea on my plants. And that's the main fertilizer they get. And then I take some of my compost and sift all the big parts out and I sprinkle a nice handful of homemade compost around all the plants in my pots. It takes me weeks to get it all done. I've got so many pots back there. That's the great fertilizer. I also sometimes use the, a liquid form of microlyze that I put in my plants when they start putting out, when they first start emerging in the spring to give them some really good microorganisms in the soil for their root growth. But everybody needs a compost pile and everybody needs a pile where they put limbs and let the limbs cover with leaves because that's habitats for chipmunks, for some birds, for bunny rabbits, and for all kinds of wildlife that live out there. The soil that you use to start your seed, is that native soil or are you buying soil? I use perlite and coconut core for my seed starter. 
And then for my potting mix, I use the, the crushed pine bark, some more perlite in that, and usually put some of my homemade compost in there. And I may put a little bit of garden soil because it has some of those microbes that the plants need that these other things that might not have can't plant plants in pots in just native soil for the most part because they hold too much water or they don't drain enough and you have plants that rot in the ground or or dry up. So you have to have something that gives you a good balance of drainage but some moisture retention. So I just mix my own. I find it cheaper than big bags because when you grow three or 4,000 pots a year like I do, you just can't afford to buy that kind of potting soil. Plant sales, proceeds, what do you do with those? All of our plant sale proceeds are dedicated to restoration of our nature trail. Just recently put in a beautiful bridge with handrails and somebody was throwing away a bunch of wrought iron fencing, beautiful filigreed wrought iron fencing. And I asked if I could have it. And we use that instead of spindles. We use that on the sides of the bridge and it made a beautiful bridge. We bought cut rocks to make stepping stones to go up some of the hillsides onto some of our walking trails just because they don't become as slippery as a wooden step or them and they don't rot away. We buy some of our plants if it's something that I don't have access to the seeds or I'm not able to grow myself. We buy some of our trees and shrubs. We've bought fencing to put around our pollinator bed. We spend a lot of our time. I never go down there without a bag because I know I'm going to have to pick up trash. Do you do restorations on those with native plants? About four years ago, we had a a rainstorm in December that uh, the creek is about two feet below the bank. The rains came up to the bank and rose until when they receded, they left leaves in the top of our, some of our little trees that we planted on the stream that were four feet tall. So the rains, you know, flooded the banks by at least six feet. When it does that, it washes the banks away. So we have spent a tremendous amount of time and money buying plants specifically to prevent erosion on the stream bank. And that would be Lakothawee, Itias, which are Virginia sweet spires and anything that you might find growing on a creek bank naturally, we're putting it in on our creek banks. A lot of ferns and a lot of grasses and native sedges because the grasses and native sedges have all those wonderful roots that will hold things in place. So We've talked about different organizations that will give you guidelines on how to build a certain habitat. Talk a little bit about that. I use National Wildlife Federation a good bit, and their website is nwf.org, I think is it. MissouriBotanicalGarden.org, the North Carolina, there's a site in North Carolina, I don't know its website. Any of the native plant societies, we have Georgia Native Plant Society, it's gnps.org, and they have a Facebook page too that gives a lot of information about plants. In fact, they do they do series, like they'll do a whole series on oak trees, and they'll tell you each day about a different oak tree that grows here. I like to go to wildflowers.org, if you can't find Find it by that address, just Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. You can go there and they will give you height, width, growing conditions, all the states it's found in natively, what wildlife uses that plant. It's a great resource for getting started with native plants. The U.S. government has a great website for that. There's one where you can go and click on plant name and it has a map and every state that that plant can be found in is green and the rest of them are white. And if you click on Georgia repeatedly, Georgia just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it shows you the counties where that plant has been found natively in Georgia. So you can look at that and say, none of this ever grows in my county, so maybe I don't need to plant it. In doing that research, I have found a lot of things on rescues that they don't have on the Carroll County's map because nobody's ever reported that it's been found in Carroll County. One of my favorite Facebook sites is Pollinator Gardens. Pollinator Friendly Yards is what it's called. And they do all kinds of posts about the gardens that they're doing that many of them are talking about. I've just started native plant gardening and I'm learning so much. Here's what I'm doing so far. And they 
give you step by step of what they're doing to get their garden started. And then you have a lot of experienced native gardeners who say, here's what my garden looks like right now. And this is what I have planted there. So you can get a lot of ideas for, for design as well as what plants are good. And they'll usually post where they're growing that because if somebody from Ohio telling you this is their native garden, you probably don't want to copy that in Georgia. <laughs> I would like to ask everybody who is interested in anything about growing native plants to search out books by Douglas Tallamy, T-A-L-L-A-M-Y. The first book was Bringing Nature Home. Connects everything. It makes it make so much sense. He's since written another book called Nature's Best Hope. And it's all about how all of us can start doing a little something in our yard. And if we do a little something in our yard and our neighbor does a little something in their yard and the neighbor on the other side of him does a little something in his yard, then we have what we call corridors. And he's calling it a homegrown national parks start small you don't have to you don't have to do a hundred acres I've got one acre uh, a half acre lot and still have a good native garden what's the best way to get connected with you Carol through the West Georgia chapter of the Georgia Native Plant Society Facebook page Carol Hyde thank you for sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm for wildflowers and native plants you are awesome this is episode 10 of the garden question podcast The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.